Welcome. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with my friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In this episode, we rather impulsively launch a new segment called The Grumpy Old Man and the Village Idiot, in which we argue about reliability. We also discuss Walmart scales, forgetting defense meetings, frisbees on the lawn, toxic masculinity, carnival barkers, sunscreen, Clint Eastwood, sibling IQ tests, and there's a hidden bark that is Greg's dog wanting to be let out. We hope you enjoy the episode. So happy new year, Greg. Happy new year to you. <laughs> we, we made it. Woohoo! Yeah. Just barely. I mean, following the semi-debacle of the holiday episode. We'll not speak of this again. But but will will Jiffy speak of it? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. Um, oh, come on. Give me a Jiffy. <laughs> Sorry, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so for, for any of you who are are remaining with us following the holiday episode. We deeply appreciate that as usual. <laughs> Thank you. From a technical standpoint, things came off the rails and now we're trying uh, to get them back, we're back. on. We're back. We're, we're back. Totally back. Right. But, uh, uh, so you had a nice holiday break? Um, uh, let's just say that the holidays are easier than what comes before the holidays. Yes, you're talking about the the <laughs> annual defensa palooza. Indeed. And so tell me, my friend, did you have a spike in your workload at the end of the semester? I if if a dozen defenses is a spike, then spike uh, spike be it. You know, I serve on committees in our department, and then I serve on a lot of committees outside. Because there's so so many more people outside of our department than inside, there are a lot of committees that I serve on where I don't actually know what they're talking about. Shh, don't tell. You you wouldn't know what that's like, right? Uh, no, not at all. You realize I don't understand, like, students in our program when I'm on there. <laughs> Doesn't matter, though. Doesn't stop us from commenting. I, not at all. So <laughs> in that spirit, I learned one valuable lesson. So I've been mm-hmm. in this role. This is my 23rd year. Mm-hmm. And I don't know you average 10 or 20 of these a year. One. One document I forgot. And so I got the document. I didn't put it on my calendar. I'm working at my desk. There's a knock on the door. I look up, the student comes in and says, we're waiting for you. (laughs) And at least through Uh my clinical training, Uh I have no idea what they're doing, no idea what the question is. But my immediate reaction is, of course, I'm just finishing up. Total lie. I have no, (laughs) no memory of this. So I grab the document and I go down and I am mortified because I am really very conscientious about this. Uh And I read them beforehand and I write out questions and I've not even read the abstract. (laughs) And I learned an incredibly valuable lesson from Mm -hmm. that experience that I have carried forward with me since. And that is, you don't need to read (laughs) the document (laughs) to be perfectly fine. Pro tips from Dr. Curran. (laughs) You know, Uh listen to the presentation, jot Uh a few things down in the margin, and nobody knows. Yeah, and then what you have to do is you have to sit in a way that you 
can't be the first committee member to be asked questions so that after some other people have asked questions, you said, yeah, I was going to ask the one that Dr. Thomas had asked, but, uh, but no, he already, uh, yep. he already brought that up. That Thank one you. is good. Or you can also say, I'd like to return to Dr. Thomas's question. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could expand a bit in the implications beyond just the characteristics of the sample that you studied here. So you don't even need your own questions as you can just draw on prior. So that's a great term is, is I would like to return to uh-huh. and then oh, use good. their question. Very so, nice. Okay, so rarely, if ever, do we actually not read the document. And as I said, in maybe three or 400 committees I've been on mm-hmm. one, that one time. However, you and I have both been on a plethora of committees in which we had no idea what was going on, even Zero. though we had read it. <laughs> so what are, what are questions that uh-huh. you ask when you have absolutely no idea What's going on around you? There are these broad questions <laughs> that that work in every situation that aren't really methodological per se that I have. And then there are methodological ones that I have that are sort of standard questions. But then the, the non-methodological ones are, you know, <laughs> things like, so now that you've done the study and you're able to step back and walk around it and look at it from different perspectives... If you were to do this again, what do you think you would do differently? How do you look at this problem differently? How might you approach it? And uh, and that usually inspires a solid five to ten minutes of discussion. Yep. But these are these are all just broad things that apply, right? If, if someone if we parachuted into a room and we could say all, all of these things, it doesn't matter exactly. what department we were in. Let me add one last one that is yeah. my all-time favorite. Okay, I have no idea what else to ask, so I'm gonna ask this one. But I mm-hmm. love the question. Now that you're done, why did you want a PhD? Ooh. Some proportion of people will say, well, because it's the highest degree you can achieve. And it's like, okay. Hmm. I know what a PhD is. Mm -hmm. What I want to know is why do you want one? And I find that phenomenally fascinating in Uh how people respond to that. Do you want to give away what you consider to be a good response or you want to just keep Oh, nobody's listening to this. Okay. What, What do you like to hear? My ideal response is, well... It's not really the PhD itself that I wanted. What I desired were all the training, the experiences, the improvement of my skill set so that I can make the kind of contributions to the field that I want to make. And a PhD is some observable marker that I have obtained those skills, but it's really the experiences and the processes that brought me here today, which is what motivated me. Wow. That's what I'm looking for. As opposed to, well, I didn't think I was smart enough to do an MD. (laughs) Or too smart to do an MD. Sure. (laughs) My favorite question I ever asked in a defense, the the circle of faculty members came around to me, it ended at me, um, and I often like it to end at me me because I tend to have the less interesting questions anyway. Um, So it ended at me, and I asked a series of questions, and the study had to do with uh, different strategies that we could do to motivate people to wear sunscreen, to protect themselves, you Mm -hmm. know, against 
uh, skin cancer. And I had one last question and it just came to me during the defense. And it was the last question of the entire defense. And I said, oh, I have one last question. Did you put on sunscreen this morning? And there was a pause and the student looked down and said, I didn't. I said, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> it was, it, I, I actually expected the student would have said yes and it would have been a win. But instead, it was this highly awkward last question of the entire wow. <laughs> Way to pop the balloon. I know. Yay, do- <laughs> Yay, doctor. This is why nobody likes us. This right here. <laughs> I thought it was a softball. I was just serving that up. And the person said no. But methodologically, there's a ton of stuff that comes up. And and I always find in dissertations, you know, for people, I mean, most of the people out there know how this works, that there's usually a dissertation proposal defense. And if you're on the committee at that point as well, then you are essentially signing off on the plan that the student has, Mm -hmm. which means that your hands are a little bit tied at the end methodologically. Like at the the defense, you're not going to say things like, well, why did you analyze it this way? Because the answer is, well, you said that was okay back when I proposed it. Um, but I still, a lot of stuff still comes up at the end methodologically that's worthwhile discussing. I don't know how much you poke at any of the methodological stuff uh, when you're in a defense. Well, I always find it a, 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 a tricky balance because this varies colleague to colleague with me, but I'm with you as I view a proposal as almost contractual is if you do this in the way that you described, I relinquish my right to say, this isn't the right sample, these aren't the right measures, these are not the simulation conditions you know, that I, 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 I would want to see. And so it's contractual in that way, but then you still wanna push them around during the meeting to ask questions and push and probe. And as I see, I think faculty asking hard questions is, it benefit to the student because I view it as an opportunity for them to demonstrate their knowledge, to show off that mm-hmm. there is no person in the country with greater knowledge on that topic and that study. Mm-hmm. And, and finding that sweet spot, I think, is sometimes hard. I have an almost infinite number of methodological questions mm-hmm. that can be asked. I'm going to pick number 343. What's that on your infinite list? Um, can you tell me briefly what sensitivity analyses did you do so that you have confidence that the core of your results are not due to a small set of outliers or a minor model misspecification or some violation of distributional assumptions? Yeah, that's a nice question. Yeah, that's a nice one you? because it... Well, I was just going to say that that's uh-huh. nice because you are supporting the analysis that the person did as a framework, but you're also asking about the way things get, you know, the, the outcomes and how can I trust the outcomes of the analysis that I agreed you should do. That's nice. Um, so I have a ton that I ask, but there's one that just, it always just really annoys me. It has to do, I don't, I don't know if this resonates with you at all, but it has to do with reliability. Reliability. I have a certain amount of passion for the issue of reliability, and maybe I'm just guilty of you know looking in places where I, I have some familiarity. But I find the treatment of this topic so cavalier and casual, and it just it, it drives me crazy. And I you know I try to help the people think through to the beginning, and but they don't they don't buy into how. Rrr, how important it is and it just totally but I don't understand. I mean if it's above 0.65 what's the issue? 
Ah, <laughs> uh, how, how what it must be like to be married to you. <laughs> that is not the first time I've heard that. I, <laughs> so I could answer that question, uh-huh. uh, but it might make me grumpy. I don't know if you uh, are you willing to entertain the grumpy old man in me, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Quantitude is proud to present a new weekly segment. Grumpy Old Man discusses reliability. Today, I'd like to introduce you to our grumpy old man, Dr. Gregory Hancock from the University of Maryland. Is this on? Is this... Whose his wife has referred to him as the youngest old man she's ever met. Dr. Hancock, welcome... What can you tell us about reliability? <laughs> well, back in my day. Uh, <laughs> all right, so you want to do this? Are we doing this? Yeah, uh, we got nothing else. We did right. start this episode without having a topic. All and right. we talked beforehand. So we, we're recording. Obviously, we're recording right now. But we always talk for 30 or 40 minutes before, mostly just catching up with one another, but also about the show. And we did not have a show topic for today, yeah. and we figured we'll throw ourselves into it and something will organically arise. Like, Dr. Hancock, <laughs> like with dissertation defense. Okay. Well, it's more right. like my life. Yeah. Okay. Good. Right? So please, um, yeah. why should I care about reliability? Nobody else does. Why should I? Hmm. Right. I, I won't. I won't do the whole thing in my old man voice here, um, but I reserve the right to put in old man, old man things here from time to time. Uh, all right, this is kind of pop quizzy, and there are lots of aspects to it. Why should I care about reliability? It's not pop quiz because I'm not asking you what reliability is. Okay, so I can assume that people know what reliability is. Eh, remind me, I'm the village idiot. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in the show. <laughs> I actually am. Yeah. So you just offended me. All the village idiots. Um, Not really, because they didn't understand it. But there's a circularity there we won't okay. address. Well, all right. I will, so I will bring this up at our next village idiot meeting, <laughs> which only has about fifty percent attendance on any night because we can't find it. Um, but please, yeah. So we, reliability. Here's an example for reliability. Uh, I have a bathroom scale. Right, I have a bathroom scale. It is a cheap Walmart bathroom scale. It's about $14.99 at Walmart. And in the morning, I might get up and stand on that scale, and it says 172. All right. And then I step off it. I'm going to go, wait, what was it again? I step on it, and it says 164. <clears throat> and then I step off it, and I step back on it again, and it says 186. Um, Reliability has to do with the consistency of the information that you're getting from a particular instrument. And what I just described is a fairly unreliable instrument. Um, and you might say, well, <clears throat> we use instruments in the social sciences. We don't use bathroom scales. And I would say, yes, the instruments that we use in the social sciences are worse than the Walmart bathroom <laughs> scale <laughs> that I have. Um, oh, and boy, so, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> Get your frisbee off my lawn! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so you're picking okay, a Okay, listeners, you can't see mm. this. He is stretching out right now. I am looking at him, 
and it's like he's ready to start start the fight. Okay. Mm, yeah. All right. Are are you limber? Uh, are you good? I, I'm good. Okay. The, uh, yeah. I, I, boy, it's it's hard to know where to enter into this because there's so much inside me just bursting out. Um, <laughs> but whenever you are use you an, it's passionate about anything else in your life. Mm, no. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I could be, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. So let's, all right, let's take a typical social science instrument. It doesn't matter what it is. Usually we use scales in the social sciences. We don't always use, use scales. Sometimes we use observations. We often administer scales where we assume the items on that scale are tapping a particular construct. First of all, is it ta- are those items tapping that particular construct? I don't know. So we need to try and assess that. Do people do that? Was the original analysis that the scale was built on, did it involve any psychometric stuff whatsoever? Wait, wait, wait. Now, what? are you throwing in validity? Oh, I don't care about validity. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a different episode. So, yeah, you're right. It's possible that when I was stepping on that bathroom scale, it was giving me my IQ every time <laughs> instead of my weight. But it was inconsistently <laughs> giving me my, my IQ. Oh, it's a 186 day. Um, so the, the question could actually be broken into two things. One, is it tapping a single construct, which might or might not be a validity issue because it could be entirely the wrong construct. It could be right. measuring the, right, the wrong thing extremely consistently. Um, the, you're, you're shooting at the wrong target, but you're doing a great job of shooting at the wrong target. But let's assume that the, the items on the scale really are tapping what you hope that they're tapping and they're doing so, I'm going to give you this, and it's a big, it's a big gimme, that they're doing so in a unidimensional way. That yes, these items that you have on your scale really are tapping that one correct construct. One beef that I have really just generally is that the literature for a lot of scales goes back quite a ways and it often predates a lot of the analyses that we have the capability to do now. And you go back and and you see something like, well, people didn't really do what we consider to be a modern psychometric validation or assessment of this particular instrument, but it has so much traction. Everybody uses this scale that, you know, no one dare ask if the emperor is wearing clothes. So oftentimes when when people are going to say they're using a particular measure, you know, I say, well, tell me about the history of that measure and how was that measure first established to be something we should be using. So a fellow idiot just slipped me a note and <laughs> it's really hard to re- read because it's on yeah. a napkin written in crayon. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he says, give me an example. Like, give me, let's talk concrete here. You're talking items, scales, constructs. Just give me an example that I can hang my hat on. Um, is it okay if I just make up an example? Oh, please. We make up this entire thing. Why would we break character? So let's Im- imagine that I have some instrument that is supposed to tap children's academic motivation. So I have the belief that academic motivation is a thing. It's, an, it's a, a unidimensional entity. And <clears throat> I might ask kids a number of questions on rating scales that I believe and others reasonably believe are tapping into, are influenced by some underlying academic motivation. Is that an okay context? Uh, perfect. All right. The thing is that people usually create a score that represents that. And even if we believe there's this underlying trait, this underlying construct, academic motivation, in the end, 
people will often take those individual scale items and they'll combine them. And probably, you know, the easiest thing to do is to take an average of them or take a total of them, something like that, so that you can hold a score in your hand. The question that people don't well address, I think, is the extent to which the score that they hold in their hand is, is reliable, right? So um, is that really just me stepping on the scale and getting a, 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 a lousy fluctuating measure of, of weight? Or is that something that if we could magically wipe children's minds and give them these questions over and over and over, that they would still be getting the same thing? And there's a lot of evidence that many of the social science scales that we use are the equivalent of the Walmart 1499 bathroom scale that you get uh, highly fluctuating scores, which is going to cause a problem that I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to flex on here in just a minute. Did you want to interrupt me? Did you have any more village idiots slipping you notes? No, I was going to ask just a super simple question of so what? Our entire field is looking at means and conditional shifts in means even though we have these crazy complicated structural equation models or regression parameters functionally moving a mean of a distribution, one unit per some, you know, gamma unit change and, and all of that is, so it's a little high, it's a little low, a little high, a little low, but on a sample, you get an average and you get an average weight for boys and an average weight for girls. And some are higher than they should be. Some are lower than they should be, but who cares? I will say that you're one of the smarter village idiots I've encountered. Um, That's so. a relative statement. <laughs> All right. So what the heck does it does it matter? So you're right that in some cases, uh, the error, the noise washes out to some extent. So we might get a pretty decent estimate of the mean and so forth. But let me pull back just a little bit and say that a lot of what we try to do in statistics is about assessing the relations among variables. And even though you talk about a mean comparison, we could also frame that as the relation between uh, an outcome variable and some grouping variable. Much, most of what we do is frameable in terms of relations. <clears throat> I'm going to give you an example, and then I'll bring it back to what you are talking about. Let's imagine I was studying the relationship between height and weight. And I, that was really important to me to know the extent to which those are correlated. It's a very lame question. On the one hand, I could do the study with a really, really good scale. And I don't know what a really good scale costs. Um, I know that when I look at my in-flight magazine, Hamaker Schlemmer has a $300 scale that they show. It's like $299 or $300 that... You know, I'm thinking this better be, give me my exact weight, or fr frankly, better give me whatever weight I want it to give me if I'm paying $300, right? But let's say that's that that would give me true weight. And then for height, I would measure people's height using the latest in height sciences. I don't know what it is. I'm sure there are lasers involved. <laughs> the height sciences? <laughs> height sciences. I'm sure that's a thing. So if I could do that, if I could measure people's heights and weights using those things, in the end, I get some correlation. I go, dang, that is the correlation. But we don't necessarily do that. We don't have the resources to do it. So I might use my Walmart scale, uh, my $14.99 Walmart scale, and get people's weights. Um, or I could be like a, a carnival worker where, mm -hmm. you guess, where you guess people's weights. You know, did, You've did got you ever... the voice for that. Do <laughs> I do? I don't, I don't even know. What... Go ahead. Give me your carnival worker right now. Come up. I'll guess your weight to within two pounds. If I don't guess your weight within two pounds, you win a Cupid doll. Like that? <laughs> that done. Done and done. <laughs> Okay. All right, so now we're back to the, the Walmart scale. <laughs> yeah. So I measure your weight with Walmart scale. 
and I measure your height by kind of eyeballing you and saying, I don't know, you look like about your five, ten and a half or so. The problem is I'm not very good at either of those. The Walmart scale isn't very good. My eyeballing height is not very good. Everybody kind of looks tall to me. Now I, cor- <laughs> <laughs> now, now I correlate those. And I get, I get a, a low correlation, relatively speaking, a low correlation. That's because each of those things has introduced measurement error. Measurement error attenuates the ability of those variables to correlate. So if the research question is, what is the correlation between Walmart scale measured weight and eyeball and height, then I have a great guess about that. But if my question is about the relation between weight and height, then I have a bad assessment of that. And so we have to pull back and ask ourselves, what is the question? Now, in your case, you were asking about a particular outcome and doesn't the mean wash out. What's going to happen is that your unstandardized effect size in the case that you describe may in the end be unbiased. If you're looking at, for example, the the effect of a diet and you want to know about if there a mean difference in weights for people on two different diets, even if I use my, my crappy Walmart scale, in the end, I will probably get an okay, okay estimate of the pounds difference between the two diets. Where I will get hammered, though, is in two complete, at least two completely related places. One is the standard error around, you know, that I use for the confidence interval of that difference. So if I uh, if I said, well, it looks like these two diets are different by about four and a half pounds. Plus or minus, well, plus or minus what? That's where the error that you have in your measure puts a lot of fat noise around it. And if I use the Walmart scale, the plus or minus might be something like, well, it's somewhere between one and a half and seven and a half pounds. But if I had used the Hamaker Schlemmer $300 scale, the confidence interval might be something like between, you know, four pounds and five pounds. It'll be a lot tighter. So first of all, it has to do with the precision. How are we doing? We okay? Am I? Am I'm I, with you. You are? You're okay? Yep. Um, if it has to do with the precision, then it also has to do with the power, uh, the statistical power to be able to detect the difference in the first place. And people go, it, it's funny, you know, we talked about power analysis in one of the prior episodes. If you have low reliability measures, it crushes your power. And people almost never factor reliability of their outcome measures into the power analysis that they do, even if it were something as crude as you know, the little Cohen's D tables that, that we used to use to figure out sample size, if the reliability of your measure is 0. 0.8, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.6, you instantly need a lot more subjects to be able to achieve the level of power that, that you think you're getting. So it kills. It just kills your power. And nobody plans for that. That drives me crazy. When someone is doing, you know, planning their study and I'm on their dissertation committee, I ask, you know, how, how good are your measures and how do you know how, how do you know that you're going to be able to overcome that? Ugh, it drives me crazy. The other thing, <clears throat> all right, in, in full old man today, it, this, and th- this is, oh, this has implications too. Oh my God. Oh, here I go. Here comes the Frisbee on the lawn. <laughs> Why would I pay for water? I can get it out of the faucet. <laughs> Okay. All right. A lot of the effect size measures that we use, standardized effect size measures, we standardize using some measure of variability that we have in, you know, if it's multiple groups, it's often a pooled measure or a control group measure or whatever. We use measures of variability to try to come up with standardized effect size measures. Well, the more error you have in the 
in the measure of variability that you use to derive your standardized effects measures, you're, you're going to get a depressed estimate of the actual effect. That's unfortunate enough. You know, what I think about is the, the people who are doing meta-analysis, for example, or the people who are trying to replicate a study, they could have the exact same effect, the exact same, treat. let's just say treatment effect, but they have different reliability in their measures. And so it looks like they're getting different results. I mean, there is different difference in the variability, but the impact of a treatment could be exactly the same, but they get quite different effect size measures. And that really bothers me because then they might get concerned about replicability. And it's not about replicability. It's about the quality of measurement differing in both places. Uh, the village idiots have a question for you. <laughs> okay. You have convinced us as a group <laughs> that this is an issue. Okay. So I compute Chromebox Alpha. Uh -huh. It's 0.82. Okay. That seems high. Is there a question, village idiot? That seems high. <laughs> okay. It's subtle inflection, but I... I mean, I, we're quantitative methodologists, so yeah, we yeah. need to assign in a principled way a numerical value to represent an underlying intellectual concept. I will accept that reliability mm -hmm. is important. Okay. So how, how do we get a numerical assessment of that, and what the hell do we do with it? Yeah. Well, if we could get a if we could get a numerical assessment that we agreed upon, then we would generally say that bigger numbers mean you have better reliability. So we all agree on Chromebox Alpha, right? Well, well, um, that's what I was taught in 1988. Right. So when you say we, I assume you mean the village idiots. So when you say you mean we village idiots agree on Chromebox Alpha, that's what I'm guessing that you that you mean. Yes. Because I I yes. I, I would not agree on Chromebox Alpha uh, for a variety of reasons. So there, there are parts to your question, right? You said something about 0.82, which has to do with a threshold, and then there's the Chromebox Alpha part. Let me take them in reverse order. <sighs> Chromebox Alpha came out, uh, I think, around 1951 or so. Mm -hmm. First of all, it wasn't Chromebox. It was Gutman's. Uh, Gutman had come out with that like six or seven years before. And Chromebox was very open about that. He just was listing it among a series of ways that you could deal with reliability. But his history has dubbed it Chromebox Alpha. Chromebox Alpha makes a number of assumptions. And I, maybe we don't need to go into all the technical details of those assumptions. But let me just throw the most, uh, the most damning, I'd say, of them out there. And that is that each of the items that you have uh, on a scale are influenced by or tapping the underlying construct to the same degree. Imagine I have a, uh, a math test, and I know that the items are binary and don't worry about that, but if I have a math test, and let's say it's single-digit addition problems, then I would probably probably feel pretty good that the problem one plus three is tapping the underlying construct of whatever math ability or addition ability about as well as the question of, you know, two plus three. On the other hand, if I have one question about academic motivation that has to do with how important it is for you to do well on your homework and another one has to do with something like wanting to participate in extracurricular activities to increase your, um, your knowledge of subject matter. 
why on earth would I believe that those two are reflecting the underlying academic motivation to the same degree? I, I, I wouldn't think that that's the case. And Chromebox Alpha makes the assumption that they are. In my neck of the woods, we do a lot of work on assessing depressive symptomatology, things like mm -hmm. that. And, and kind of a classic example of that problem is you have an item that says you don't enjoy doing activities that you used to uh, to the same extent. And another question is you feel lonely even when you're around other people. And then a third question is uh, you often uh, have fantasies about suicide and hurting yourself. And making an assumption of do those three items equally define the underlying construct of depression is dubious at best. And in fact, that's something that we can assess through some of the modeling that we have in this more modern age. But, but yeah, Chromebox Alpha assumes that they are all tapping this, the underlying construct to the same degree. Now, if you screen, if you if you wrote a zillion items and screened them out so that they're all really great items, then then maybe that's not such an egregious assumption, but it almost certainly is a false assumption. And to the extent that you have items that have much more range in the ability to which they tap that underlying construct, then alpha is going to be uh, more and more incorrect in terms of the assumption that it's making and in terms of the computation. Now, computation really, I think it's safe to say, drove the original Chromebox Alpha in the sense that once you make that assumption, then you get out this really nice closed form formula that you can calculate by hand. And in 1951, that's a great thing. Uh, so that assumption might not be realistic, but it gives us something that we can work with. But it would be really nice to be able to free that assumption up. It would be really nice to allow each variable to tap the underlying construct to the, to the degree that it needs to. And then in turn, for us to have an assessment of reliability that reflects that potentially differential relevance of those items. And there has been a lot of work. Um, one coefficient I particularly like is omega. Uh, McDonald is often credited with, uh, with omega. And Omega is sort of like a Cronebox Alpha, except it allows for variables to have different degrees of relevance as they relate back to the underlying construct. And Omega has, although measurement people have known about it for a really long time, it just is not out there, right? You would have wanted to buy stock in Cronebox Alpha back in 51, and you... <laughs> You're, you'd be kicking back, you know, living large in your in your mountain house or your lake house or whatever. So Cronebox Alpha has generated a lot of revenue over the oh, years. It's, it's been it's massive. Okay, so I'm going to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah. Because I never do that. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. That's so Cronebox Alpha, if you violate assumptions, and I realize there are other assumptions we're violating, you fit it to your data, you get a point seven eight. You download R, you update the packages, and you get Omega, which is 0.84. So what? what? What the hell do you do with that? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first of all, it's going to be some indication of the quality of your bathroom scale. And it lets you know if you're a... If you're a planner, it gives you a sense of how much noise is being introduced into that measure, and it gives you a sense of the limitation of that variable's ability to relate to other things. And you know what? It just might not matter. It might be the case that whatever you're doing can tolerate the amount of noise. So whatever you said, 0.84, maybe, maybe it can tolerate 16% of its variance being error. 
Maybe you will still have enough power to find things. Maybe the effect that it has on your ability to assess the effect size will be so negligible, you're not going to reach any, um, any different conclusion inferentially. And maybe the answer is, yeah, so what? On the other hand, maybe with your 0.84 reliability, you said 0.84, I think, right? Sure, we'll go with that. All right. Um, maybe it's the case that you are making such critical decisions based on the scores that you have that that is an unsatisfactory, an unacceptable degree of, of reliability because you might be, let's just use an example, um, admitting people into your program who shouldn't be admitted into your program or failing to admit people into your program who should, right? The, that there's a standard error around the scores, a standard error of estimate around your scores. Now, technically, it's not the same at different levels of scores, but we're sort of assuming that it is, and IRT models allow you to have you know, standard errors that are dependent upon where you're making the scores. That would be like having a bathroom scale that does gives you better weights in the mid-range and, and less reliable weights at the higher low end. So I have a funny anecdote on that. My wife and I pre-kid lived out in the county, and when we had kids, we decided to move into Chapel Hill for the schools. This is in the spirit of they'll give a PhD to anybody who asks for one. <laughs> We bought a house in Chapel Hill and moved without looking up what the cutoff date was for your kid to start kindergarten. Mm -hmm. And they had to be five by September 1st. And my girls were born on September 4th. So we bought a house and moved <laughs> and then realized we had another year before they could go into the schools. And so being good problem solvers, we gathered all information and we, we found out that they have a standardized test that the kids can take mm -hmm. to see if they can go in early if they don't meet the cutoff, right? Now, keep in mind they're four, <laughs> right? That they believe things live under their bed and they're eating their own boogers and they are four <laughs> years old, but there's a standardized test and Chapel Hill Public Schools, I will call them out because they've got this on their webpage. If you're in the 99th percentile, you can go in early. And I got into an extended discussion with the woman as to how that is the least reliable score right. of the entire exam. And, there, uh -huh. and at one point, Andrea just took the phone from me and hung up. <laughs> But yes, is that notion that reliability, that's one thing I've learned from my colleague, Dave Thyssen, who is an mm -hmm. IRT expert, is it's, it's in, in a very meaningful way, is you can't even talk about what is the reliability of a scale because it depends on the underlying score. And to have this policy in place that you have to be in the 99th percentile, I mean, you might as well draw lottery numbers, yeah. right, to determine once you're above 90th, percent or 95th percent it's just random yeah yeah i had we had a similar it's sort of similar issue where my sons when they were a bit younger they're in high school and middle school now uh but when my sons were a bit younger they were participating in a study at johns hopkins and part of the data that were gathered involved administering an iq test to both of them and we we got the results back, and we you know we didn't want the kids to open, to see the envelope or anything. We was, we just treated it as information for us parents. But we were looking at it, and you know, so one kid's score was a little bit higher than the other kid's score. But they they got a hold of the envelopes. 
and 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 so one of the kids was lording his his score <laughs> over the other one um and I I had to explain about standard error of measurement and how you're actually both completely within range of each other and that's measurement noise, you know, just measurement noise didn't make a damn bit of difference to the one with the higher score, right? This is just the most reliable thing. But yeah, yeah I of- have I have a similar <laughs> I have twins and one was born 19 minutes before the other mm-hmm. and it's like ringing a bell as if she really wants to piss the other one off. Mm-hmm. She calls her little sister. <laughs> okay, we're going to step back. Yep. I got to tell you is I'm not understanding why you're grumpy. Okay. Like we've had really good conversations about this, but mm-hmm. what what what's the grumpy part? Yeah. That we don't pay enough attention to this? Um absolutely we don't pay enough attention to this. First of all, there's people are not thoughtful in how they assess it. They're not thoughtful in their um in 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 seeing whether or not the assumptions that underlie their assessment of reliability, whether or not those assumptions are met, they fail to take into account the consequences of unreliability when they're planning their um, their particular studies. They don't factor reliability uh, into their conclusions. You or unreliability into their conclusions. You had made some statement about sensitivity analysis mm-hmm. uh, as one of your standard questions. To what extent are the results that one has a, a function of a lack of reliability that they might have? Um, there's so much hinges on the quality of the measure that you have. And people seem to think, and, and I read this statement all the time, our measures had adequate reliability. Yep. It's just just in there. And I, I will go look at the numbers, and I, I swear to God, I might see something like 0.52 or I might see something like 0.97. And it doesn't matter what number is there. And I and I can ask something like, so I noticed that you said that you had adequate reliability, and I saw in the table it was, you know, 0.52. What did you what's adequate to you? And the answer is invariably, well, that's adequate for our field. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yep. My favorite <laughs> response, I was on one with a 0.58. Uh-huh. And their their criteria for adequate was well, more of the observed variance could be attributable to true score than error. So, <laughs> right. So mm-hmm. think about like our law system is it's like we wrongfully incarcerate fewer than half mm-hmm. of the cases, which means that we're right more than half of the time. And, and that's adequate. That's, that's but a that, win. Was, that was the criteria is more of the variance than not. So the 50% was. Yeah. Yeah. That's problematic for me. And, and, you know, for me, I will also say, well, a couple, a couple of things. One is that, you know, you had raised an issue in a, in a previous episode about the differentiation between us and statistics, capital S mm-hmm. statistics. And, this doesn't quite get at your question, but I want to make sure I say that before I come back to uh, an answer to your question. Um, in statistics, in my experience, capital S statistics, there's almost no thought given to where the numbers come from. It's what you do after you have the numbers. And a big component of what you and I care about within our worlds 
has to do with what happens long before you do anything with those numbers. It's it's ensuring that you have quality numbers in the first place. So the issue of measurement for me, it's not just a personal interest. It's absolutely critical because all the analyses rest upon the quality of the information that you have. For me, it's also part of the the inferential storyline that you have when you read a study and you know you read studies like this all the time whether they're dissertations or otherwise the introduction is is grand it talks about hopes and dreams and constructs and and big 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 things and the conclusion of the study talks about you know dreams fulfilled and constructs and it's it's at this very very broad level and in the middle is the method section, right? The method and the results. And what you wanna have in the middle of the study is something that connects that storyline. If you are talking about constructs and the relations among constructs or differences among groups on those constructs, then the analyses that you do on the measures that you have should preserve things as close to the construct as possible. But instead you get things like, well, we we did a t-test on a three-item measure that we came up with and and you're wait whoa 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 time out just what would happen there you had this grand introduction about constructs and stuff you had this conclusion that was and in the middle you just dropped way down in terms of the measures in terms of the analyses and what i just generally like to see is that the whole middle part the method section, the results section, is as close to preserving that construct storyline as possible. And there are multiple ways to do that. One is ensuring that the quality of measurement that you have is as high as possible. Because the less reliable your measure, the farther you are falling potentially from that construct. And the conclusions that you will reach are not entirely about the construct. They're they're in part about the measure that you have of the construct, not the construct itself. So that's that's one thing. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Okay. The other has to do with a world that you and I live in a lot, and that's the latent variable world where we say, yeah, you know what? We know that the measures that we have aren't perfectly reliable. Is there some way that we can not just acknowledge that, but actually do something about it? in our analyses, something corrective that we can do. And you and I live in this world of structural equation modeling where ideally we try to elevate our models to the level of those constructs and parse out the measurement error as much as possible so that we're actually looking at the relations among the constructs, assessing the relations among the constructs, looking at group differences in those particular constructs and not just the measures thereof. So from an analytical standpoint, I'm a big fan of those kinds of models because analytically it elevates our analyses to the level of the story. But still, you pay for it. You, you pay for having poor measures. And I, a lot of people I encounter think that those types of models will just save the day and, and you know solve all of your problems. But even when you have lousy measures of the constructs that you care about, you can do however fancy a model that you want. And it might, it might disattenuate the relations of the bias, but you're still paying for it in terms of standard errors. You're still paying for it in terms of, of power. Um, so there really, there's no free lunch for poor measurement. Even if you use fancy models, fancy models with garbage indicators in the end has uh, results that you can't necessarily trust. So 
for me, everything we do hinges upon the quality of the of the measures that we have. And that's the reason that that I get, you know, super grumpy about this. That if people don't attend to the measures, they focus on what they do once they've got the data. But no, 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 no. Focus on the part before that. Make sure you got the quality data. So that that's the thing that makes me super grumpy is that people just don't pay attention to that. Sorry, getting kind of worked up. Oh, sure. You're going to talk about p-hacking and replicability crises and uh, hypothesizing after you know the results and blah, blah, blah. But you don't talk about the measurement. <laughs> and um, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I printed the directions from MapQuest. We're ready to go. <laughs> you don't have to do that, Dad. Um, I need my boarding pass. Could you print? No, you don't have to print your, your, your boarding pass, Dad. Hang on, I have to write a check. No, you don't actually have to write it. <laughs> we could Sorry. do this all day, I <laughs> yeah. think. Yeah, we could. The reverberations of what you're grousing about are profound, I think, Greg, is I'm going to jump on the lawn <laughs> with you <laughs> to get that, that, that frisbee off. Which is to say that the reliability of your scale is adequate paren alpha equals 0.75 has profound implications. And you can talk about it in a discussion. You can talk about the limitations. This all started with how do you ask a question if you don't know what's going, you know, what's happening in the committee meeting and to say, well, what are the implications of having a reliability of 0.75? That's all fine. But realistically, we have to think about to the left of that 0.75 and to the right of that 0.75. To the left of the 0.75, how do we design measures and items that have higher reliability than that? And to the right of it is when we get the empirical data itself, how do we fit a model that represents that unreliability? So if you take the mean of your 10 items and use it as a predictor in a regression model, you are assuming that reliability is 1.0. Well, what tools and mechanisms do we have available to us where we can try to estimate and represent that not all of the variability that we observe is true score, but that it's some mix of, of true score and error which then moves us to a multiple indicator latent factor or to an item response theory model or something like that. So I'm going to move from my village idiot table over to the grumpy old man table. Okay. And say I share the same frustration. I think the dismissiveness of it that is just so maddening is that reliability was adequate. Yeah. It's one of the worst phrases. And I can say this because I've written that. I've written that statement. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, this is not a holier than thou. Admitting is, that is the first step, Patrick. Oh, shut Good up. For you. <laughs> God. Good for you. Yeah. Um, so, and have you? Oh, no. Mm. All right, listeners. <laughs> mm. Here is this week's challenge. Oh, Google's Please down. Please review Google's down. Hancock's <laughs> corpus of work. Okay. And post to Twitter. Oh, God. If thanks. he has ever written the phrase, the reliability was adequate. Mm -hmm. Here's how I know I haven't. And that is that it would have occurred in an applied paper and it means that the other person might have written it. 
Wow. It wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> so you're saying then that your name is on a manuscript that you did not contribute to the writing of about reliability. Mm-hmm. Oh, just that part. <laughs> just that part. <laughs> yeah. But but you know what? The reliability might have been adequate. And there are levels of reliability that are. And you have a certain amount of inferential robustness sometimes. And, you know, this this raises another point, and, and I, I, I feel us converging nicely. But, but a point I want to make is that reliability is not a property of a scale. It is not a property of an instrument. It's obviously tied to that, but it's also tied to a context. It's tied to the people. You know, if you think about scale validation, who do people validate or who do people develop scales on? What, what is it? Psych, psych 100 students or, right? I mean, the, the foundation of so many instruments is often very far removed from the population that people want to actually use the, the instrument on. So reliability, people think too often, is a property of the instrument. They can just cite some other study that says mm-hmm. it was real. Well, how do you know it's reliable for the people that you are studying, for the context in which you are studying? Adequately reliable for the purpose that you are using this particular uh, instrument. So, you know, that's that's another aspect of this that just frustrates me, that people just think it comes with the instrument. It doesn't come with the instrument. It has to do with the quality of the information from the people and context that you're gathering. So uh, let me just tack that on there. Well, and that may be one of the most important points, because what we've been talking about is, you know, reporting in a, in a manuscript that the reliability of the instrument in your sample was 0.75. But it's very common to see the Hancock measure of toxic masculinity has been shown to have adequate reliability without even examining that with respect to the the sample at hand. All right, I'm going to move from the grumpy old man table back to the village idiot table. <laughs> just leaving table the toxic masculinity thing hanging there. You know, okay. I, it was an example. It was just oh, an example. Just, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so where do we go? Like, yeah. where do we go from here? How do we address this? How do we do this better than we're currently doing it? I hesitate to say that everybody needs to do a full psychometric workup of every instrument that they plan to use. However, I I do want a lot more thought that goes into understanding the assumptions that underlie a particular instrument. And we're just not that far removed from it now that you can do preliminary analyses. You can do... Uh, you know, confirmatory factor models on instruments to see whether or not unidimensionality is reasonable. You can assess reliability in more sophisticated ways than Kronbach's alpha, rest in peace. I'm coming to expect that out of people that you, um, and assess the reliability, absolutely assess the reliability in the sample you have. Do not just tell me that it was shown to be reliable in previous studies. In fact, having a study that involves steps, stages, you know, a preliminary part of the study could be assessing the quality of the measures that you're going to use and then moving on uh, from there. I don't know if you have, if you have structured thoughts on this matter. 
in my own work, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And in my own work, I'm I'm starting to find, and maybe this is a good like wrap up place because it sets up future episodes to talk about other things. Mm-hmm. Is I okay? Now I'm going to move back over to the grumpy old man table. Okay. Go. I feel like from my field of psychology and psychometrics, right? We can track back to Spearman and Thurstone. My, I work in the Thurstone psychometric lab is the field of psychology along with other disciplines played a very important role in, in measurement and, and validity and reliability and all of these issues that we're talking about. Quite honestly, I feel like we've forgotten about that a bit. Mm-hmm. I, I did a, a advanced reading seminar this this fall with uh, quant grad students, and it was great fun uh, because we talked a lot about like classic stuff and psychometrics. And to go back, we reread some of Thurstone's original work, you know, from the late 30s. I have a first edition of Thurstone's Vector of Mind. And when I say Thurstone's, I literally mean Thurstone's copy as you open it up and he wrote his name on the inside. It's absolutely remarkable. That's so cool. But I I feel like we've forgotten some of these things that we paid more attention to, ironically, in the (laughs) 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And part of it, I don't know what, I I, I think it's a a multidimensional problem. But I think a big part of it is we're starting to do models in a way that are so complicated, Mm -hmm. right? We have, and my fingerprints are on some of these, your fingerprints are on some of these, but you know, latent curve models and mixture models and you know, network analyses and things where the models themselves are so complicated that we can't support the estimation of a multiple indicator latent factor. So we have to use a scale score. And so we add up six items and divide by six and then do these crazy ass multiple group latent curve structured residual models. But both Gauss and Markov roll over in their grave because Mm -hmm. even in these ridiculous models, we're assuming that anything that we draw with a square is perfectly reliable. Mm-hmm. And it's an inane assumption. And so what I feel like is as a field, we need to remind ourselves of these psychometric principles. And one, just be cognizant about it, right? As the classic Clint Eastwood, a man's got to know his own limitations, mm-hmm. is as you've said several times, it may be fine. Like having a reliability of 0.85 may be fine, but it might not be. And mm-hmm. articulate to the reader in what ways might it not be. And what are the implications of that? But then also aspiring to do better, like to continue to move forward. And the thumbtack I'd like to put in for a topic in the future where I can be the grumpy old man and you can be the village idiot Mm -hmm. is scoring. Because we haven't said one word about where does our scale score come from. Implicitly, it's been a mean or it's been a sum. But wow, we can do better than that. Mm-hmm. I tell my students is there are several just givens in learning quant and becoming good at quant. And one is look for general rules. One is look for patterns. And the third is you have to pay the reaper, right? <laughs> you don't get anything where there's not a cost. And if I want to do this crazy latent curve model with structured residuals, 
that's fine. And I'm going to concede that I need to work with manifest variables for my repeated measures. But how can we work to get those that have as high a reliability and high a validity as possible that allows us to go do this other silly stuff that we're trying to do? That will be my grumpy old man for some future episode Good. is we can do better than just add up the items and divide by how many items there are. Yep. There's a good conversation there to be had. Um, so it sounds like our joint take-home message is that maybe it's time to uh, to go retro and return to some first principles about the quality of the information that we have and putting a lot more energy on the front end um, and not assuming that the analytical back end is just going to clean stuff up for That's us. That's exactly right. And one of my favorite quotes, I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have it right in front of me, but it's the classic quote from Stevens in, I think it was 1946, but measurement is the principled assignment of numbers to observations. Mm -hmm. That's not the exact quote, but that's a paraphrase of it. And I really do think as a field, we need to go back 50 years and remind ourselves of what these psychometricians were working on at the time. But I feel like as an entire field, we need to go back to 1951 when Kronbach was talking about these things and just remind ourselves of that because I think we've forgotten. Back to the future. Marty! <laughs> and we're out of time. <laughs> so do you want to... You want to come on over? I have some leftovers in the icebox. We could sit on the Davenport, and <laughs> I taped something that we could watch. Is it on beta? <laughs> it's the future. <laughs> Beta's the future. All right. That is this ends mm -hmm. our inaugural episode of Grumpy Old Man Discusses Whatever. Uh -huh. Right. And uh, we hope you've enjoyed it because we put days and days of preparation into this episode. And so I hope that the, you know, the quality <laughs> and the organization reflects that. As usual, everyone, thank you for your time. We can't tell you how much we appreciate uh, letting us share part of your day with you. Uh, yeah. And so enjoy whatever the rest of your day is left. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you get your other clearly less favorite podcasts and leave us a review. And be sure to tell your friends. Uh, oh, also, check us out on Twitter where our handle is at QuantitudePod. You can also visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, to check out previous episodes and other really cool stuff. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast equivalent of a stale holiday fruitcake. Well, actually, it's worse, since you can't re-gift it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Rensis Likert Foundation, reminding you that every time you say Likert, a kitten dies. And by bootstrapping, solving the problem of crappy small samples by making other crappy small samples out of your crappy small sample. And by machine learning, laying the foundation for the robotic uprising of 2063, one Amazon suggestion at a time. This is definitely not NPR. <laughs>